Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser and on this podcast series we interview leading clinicians, characters and troublemakers who are changing the face of clinical healthcare. On today's podcast I'll be talking with Dr Stephen Warrilow. Stephen is the Director of Intensive Care at Melbourne's Austin Health and is the President of the Australian New Zealand Intensive Care Society. Welcome Stephen. Yeah, thanks very much Todd. Stephen, firstly, what is acute liver failure and why does it matter? So acute liver failure is a very specific and, dare I say it, rare syndrome. Uh, there's only about probably 70 or so presentations, that sort of ballpark anyway, across Australia and New Zealand each year. It's, I think uh, all of the listeners would be familiar with what liver failure looks like and would uh, probably anticipate seeing someone with decompensated chronic liver disease. So person with advanced cirrhosis who will have a gastrointestinal hemorrhage or develop hepatic encephalopathy or sepsis, and they come into our ICU pretty commonly. Acute liver failure is distinct and different. So it occurs in someone without known previous liver disease, and it occurs over a matter of days in hyperacute, so that might be one week, um, or it can present a little bit of a slow burn over weeks perhaps, but um, by definition occurs in uh, less than uh, about 26 weeks. That's actually a bit uncommon. It's mostly hyperacute is what we see in Australia and New Zealand, and that's mainly due to paracetamol. Uh, so, yeah, it's a very, um, it has a lot of the manifestations that we expect of um, liver insufficiency, but it's a distinctly different and much rarer syndrome than what we're used to, which is decompensated chronic liver disease. And Stephen, there's a, a fairly apparent difference between paracetamol-associated ALF and other causes, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. So we've uh, done some uh, recent observational work across Australia and New Zealand, and uh, paracetamol overdose, uh, in a way that may not surprise people, accounts for a little over half of all acute liver failure in, uh, in our region. And whilst it, it almost always presents as a, um, a hyperacute presentation, so these patients are manifestly unwell at uh, presentation. I, I hasten to add that, that most patients with paracetamol overdose don't end up in ICU with acute liver failure. In fact, they're an incredibly small minority, thankfully, because our colleagues in the community in, um, in emergency medicine will treat them early with N-acetylcysteine and they don't develop overt liver failure and they don't come to an ICU. Uh, but those that do become extraordinarily unwell very, very quickly and will develop uh, severe hepatic encephalopathy, severe coagulopathy. Uh, both of those are classic hallmarks and part of the definition of acute liver failure. And then uh, invariably develop severe hemodynamic compromise in a very shocked state that resembles severe septic shock quite closely, actually, and uh, often develop multiple organ failure. And uh, if you've got one in your unit, they're probably going to be the sickest person in your hospital. Uh, that said, uh, if you can keep them alive long enough for hepatic regeneration to start spontaneously, which would appear to happen within a week, then they actually have a pretty good overall prognosis and um, will, dare I say it, usually survive uh, without requiring an emergency liver transplantation, which is, is quite a contrast to a patient with acute liver failure from most other causes where they may not be so spectacularly unwell at initial presentation, but they tend to have a relentless deterioration uh, and uh, often have a very poor outcome and uh, a high mortality without liver transplantation. 
The impetus for this interview was largely the the journal article that you wrote in the recent episode of the uh, of critical care and resuscitation around the nature of ALF in the Australasian context. What was the survey that you performed, and what were the key findings from that review? Yeah, sure. So I might go back very, very briefly. We we published another paper um, prior to the quick care and resuscitation paper, which was in uh, in uh, Internal Medicine Journal, where we used the ANSIC's core database and also a little bit of the Australian and New Zealand liver transplant registry, really just to get a broad outline of um, what is the the uh, the deal with acute liver failure in our region. Um, basically, what we found from the ANSIC's core database is that. Uh, uh, we seem to be seeing increasing numbers of acute liver failure patients presenting in our region. It's um, rising year on year above that predicted by uh, population growth alone. And again, consistent with what's been reported in the past and from overseas, uh, it's a disease that disproportionately affects women. Uh, it tends to occur in patients that are younger than our uh, usual ICU population, and they have um, quite a significantly higher mortality despite relative absence of comorbidities. So in essence, these are predominantly younger patients who are female who are previously well, which is, I guess, not surprising uh, given part of the definition of, of acute liver failure. But they are certainly incredibly unwell at presentation. Um, they uh, tend to have a, an Apache 3 score, for example, of uh, close to 80 compared to a, an average of just over 50 for the general ICU population. And their, their risk of death is about 30%, which again um, towers over uh, the general ICU population. So these people are previously well, young, mostly female and otherwise fit, and um, they are amongst the sickest patients that we manage in an ICU. And unfortunately, we're not seeing improvements in outcome over time either. Um, listeners may well be aware that uh, Australasian intensive care practice has been one of relentless success, where we've seen um, mortality rates um, uh, even allowing for changes in case mix and acuity improve uh, remarkably over the last uh, 15 to 20 years and I know that Dave Pilcher and another, a number of others have published on that. Um, we can't say that for acute liver failure, so we're seeing more of them uh, and yet we don't see the same improvements in outcomes. Now, what we then undertook to kind of get more granular detail was a really comprehensive evaluation of acute liver failure patients across uh, all of the Australian and New Zealand liver transplant units. So we um, imposed on the generosity of our colleagues at each ICU that undertakes liver transplantation, and we asked them to collect um, retrospectively or, or prospectively, whatever worked for them at the time, um, patients who were admitted to their unit with acute liver failure meeting the Apache 3 um, criteria and to get rather a lot of data. In fact, on each patient, we collected up to nearly 500 data points. Uh, so this was pretty onerous, and uh, I'd like to note my gratitude for those that um, undertook the pretty challenging task of, tra of trawling through medical records to get all of this data. Really, we wanted to know a great deal more about this patient group. We wanted to know who they are and uh, where they've come from, literally, where they, you know, from rural or, or, or um, outer metro areas versus inner city and where do they present to, what were their comorbid conditions, uh, what was their clinical state of presentation, what interventions were required to support them during the course of their ICU care, and uh, what sort of management practices were administered, and ultimately what were their outcomes, how many survived uh, with spontaneous liver regeneration and didn't need transplantation, 
and how many of them uh, required a transplant to survive and how many uh, succumbed. So it was rather a lot of work and um, it's uh, been rather satisfying to finally see it uh, published. Um, essentially what we found was that these patients, again, are, uh, tend to be younger, tend to be female, uh, and are really extremely unwell when they present. So again, Apache 3 scores um, of close to 80 uh, in all comers with acute liver failure. And um, really all of the markers of critical illness that you care to consider were often spectacularly elevated. So it was... was the median lactate was nearly five. Uh, and in paracetamol overdose patients, it was um, over seven. Uh, so those patients were, were pretty unwell at first presentation uh, and, uh, as you'd also expect, had marked abnormalities in hemostasis and uh, hemodynamic parameters. So what do, what do we know about those patients who are presenting in ALF in the Australasian context? So what we've determined is that... Um, Pleasingly, uh, well, it's obviously not pleasing that we get so much paracetamol poisoning, um, ha nearly half of which, by the way, are staggered, which perhaps suggests that they might be inadvertent, although that's somewhat speculative. But nonetheless, it does um, make me wonder whether some public health um, uh, issues uh, raised by that finding. Um, what we find pleasingly, though, is that the paracetamol um, patients tend to do pretty well. Um, that uh, if you can get them through their first uh, period of fairly spectacular critical illness, uh, that they um, have pretty good outcomes. So only, only about 6% um, of paracetamol overdose ALF patients get transplanted, which um, uh, is quite different to the non-paracetamol uh, acute liver failure patients. So the patients with um, flares or primary episodes of hepatitis B or autoimmune hepatitis and the like, um, or um, other non-paracetamol drug-induced uh, acute liver failure, uh, they've got a transplant rate of uh, something quite close to 40%. And uh, their transplant-free mortality is significant. So um, paracetamol overdose acute liver failure patients um, have a uh, mortality of 28% without transplantation, whereas for non-paracetamol overdose acute liver failure patients, if they're not transplanted, their mortality is um, 56%. So quite a considerable difference between those two groups. And um, in a sense, I guess, we'd encourage people to think of them very differently, that um, both manifest severe liver failure, and it's all acute, uh, but um, the presentation is a little different and their outcomes are certainly very different in the absence of transplantation. Now, there is a subset, of course, who were presenting uh, to hospitals other than the, uh, the liver centres that you refer to and were subsequently transferred uh, as part of their, their journey. Do we know anything about the, the differences in those types of patients? Do they tend to present more sick or, or further down, more advanced in their, their disease progression than other types of patients, or do they behave in a similar way? Overall, Todd, their behaviour is reasonably similar and we didn't find any hugely significant differences in their presentation or outcome. But um, certainly several of the values were numerically worse but didn't reach statistical significance and their outcomes were, were overall pretty similar, which is reassuring. Um, but I guess it does underscore that um, we'd strongly recommend that uh, these patients should be discussed at the very least with a, a transplant centre, if not um, immediately worked up for um, retrieval to one. And that goes for patients who may, it's considered, may not require transplantation or, dare I say, it may not be considered appropriate for transplantation, which is sometimes a bit of a vexed issue to, to work through. Um, and certainly patients who 
have really an indecree of encephalopathy um, or persisting uh, elevations in INR or hemodynamic compromise really ought to be transferred to a liver transplant centre. Uh, we would recommend uh, very early on the course of their, their deterioration. The, the disorder is often rapidly progressive. It can be difficult to predict exactly what's going to happen next, uh, but many will deteriorate pretty spectacularly and pretty quickly. And whilst the package of care that we generally deliver in a transplant centre is in many respects uh, certainly um, within the capabilities of, of um, most modern intensive care units, often it's just having uh, the background experience of having seen a lot of it and uh, sort of having a feel for where things might head and also having the option of transplantation uh, up one's sleeve uh, for, for such a patient if, it, if it's deemed necessary, uh, waiting until someone's really um, in refractory overt multiple organ failure or, or has severe cerebral edema and then undertaking a very um, risky transfer doesn't sound like much fun. And we, we'd certainly, I think speaking for my team at the Austin, I think one could safely say for the other transplant units around Australia and New Zealand, um, everyone would prefer a heads up pretty early on uh, in the course of things even if um, it's not considered that the patient will end up requiring or, or being appropriate for transplantation. Uh, and we would uh, very much err on the side of bringing a patient across early. And if things work out easier than we thought or not as severe, then that's a lovely surprise for everybody. And no one really feels terribly bad about that. Uh, but getting a patient who's, um, you know, vert multiple organ failure and has refractory shock and, uh, and or cerebral edema... Uh, such a transfer is very, very challenging and very risky and um, there may not be much we can do by the time they arrive if they're too far gone. Stephen, how do the results of the survey that you conducted sit in the context of a world um, world stage? Yeah, it's a, a great question. So in terms of etiology, it would appear that the, sort of the Anglophone countries, for want of a better term, seem to have an issue with paracetamol. So um, paracetamol overdose is the dominant cause of acute liver failure in the United Kingdom, uh, in um, the United States uh, and Australia, but perhaps not New Zealand, although that's, um, the data is probably not really strong enough to, to make that statement definitively, but there might be uh, differences in New Zealand compared to Australia. Um, whereas it's certainly not the case worldwide. So in, in um, uh, developing countries, it tends to be far more um, viral hepatitis, particularly hepatitis B, and hepatitis E in endemic areas. Uh, hepatitis A uh, on occasions can certainly cause severe acute liver failure. And uh, also another, another important cause in those regions is non-paracetamol um, or dare I say idiosyncratic um, severe uh, liver injury from medications. Um, and uh, th those, um, by the way, tend to have a, a relatively poor outcome without transplantation as well. Uh, somewhat um, more insidious onset than paracetamol but certainly become very sick over time. So etiology tends to vary quite a bit around the world. In terms of outcomes, uh, despite relatively low transplant rates, which, dare I say, to a significant degree, reflect paracetamol being the dominant cause in our region, but even allowing for that, our, our transplant rates are uh, at similar levels or, or below those described elsewhere, and yet our outcomes for survival are good. Um, one major challenge I think it's worth noting in the management of acute liver failure patients is that if you transplant a critically ill patient with acute liver failure, then they'll tend to do very, very well. 
um, uh, the survival outcomes from transplants uh, in the emergency setting aren't quite as good as elective patients with cirrhosis undergoing transplantation, but nonetheless, they're extremely good. And you can certainly, uh, quote-unquote, save someone's life from acute liver failure if you transplant them. I guess the real challenge for those of us working in transplant centres and the discussions that we often have, which are pretty angst-ridden with our uh, liver transplant surgical and physician colleagues, and, and this is really one of the most challenging parts of our role, is to figure out who is okay to, or who, who really needs a transplant um, and is it such high risk of death without one that, that we need to proceed versus who has a reasonable chance of surviving without, um, without a transplant. And people will be, I'm sure, uh, well aware of um, criteria such as the, the King's College criteria or the cliche and others. And I think it's fair to say that um, in contemporary practice in Australasia, they, they may not be a good fit for us. And we will often have patients that will meet those criteria who we know um, we can get through without transplantation. And we have patients who might not meet the criteria who can deteriorate and die without a transplant. So uh, I think, broadly speaking, that it comes down to experienced clinicians visiting the bedside a couple of times each day looking at every single parameter uh, that's available to us and uh, using best judgment based on experience and, and expertise to, to make the call. Because getting it wrong either direction is a big deal. Uh, you obviously would not wish to see a patient succumb to acute liver failure when a transplant might have saved them, but uh, neither would you wish to inflict a transplant on a patient who might have had a pretty reasonable chance or a chance of pulling through without one. And uh, condemning them to a life of immunosuppression and, uh, and the life and all its attendant complications in the longer term. So it's, it's not an easy thing to, uh, to undertake and uh, uh, it's a decision that's best made uh, as a team with uh, our transplant uh, clinical colleagues. Stephen, for the junior people who are listening to this, what are the key challenges and management priorities of uh, a patient with um, acute liver failure? Yes, so of all the manifestations of the multiple organ failure, the, the first and foremost is the neurological complications. So these patients have encephalopathy by definition. And unlike decompensated cirrhotics with encephalopathy, acute liver failure patients with encephalopathy are at higher risk of cerebral edema. And there's a complex background pathophysiology to that, uh, but um, at the end of the day, they're at higher risk of intracranial hypertension as well. And once upon a time, that was possibly the dominant cause of death in these patients. And it was said that 80% uh, of high-grade encephalopathy patients will develop cerebral edema, and 80% of them will die of it. Now, that's probably not the case these days, but it certainly uh, conveys the serious nature of um, cerebral edema in these patients. And it's important to manage that pretty aggressively and not get into that sort of tailspin situation where you've got progressive cerebral edema, progressive neurological injury and high risk of, uh, of uh, a neurological death. So it's important to note that no single intervention has been shown to change the outcome in and of itself. But there are reasonable reasons to believe that perhaps a suite of interventions may assist. And they sent around... Um, basically, we would advocate starting um, renal replacement therapy very early. Not because, in a sense, we're waiting for the kidneys to fall over, although that is very common in these patients, but as a neuroprotective uh, uh, intervention. Hyperammonemia is essentially universal in acute liver failure, 
and it seems to be a driving element of the uh, all of the processes that uh, contribute to cerebral edema and intracranial hypertension in these patients. And uh, we've demonstrated through a, another paper that we've currently got under review that you can actually bring down the um, blood ammonia levels to, if not normal, very near normal levels within a short space of time using um, hemofiltration or hemodifiltration. So um, certainly in our own unit, we um, uh, try and ensure that we would initiate renal replacement therapy um, within a couple of hours of the patient arriving in the unit. If they're intubated and have high grade encephalopathy, we would put a vascath in and hemofilter them pretty aggressively and target a near normal uh, ammonia. A few other things we tend to do is make sure that the temperature is very well controlled. Um, in the past, people have advocated for hypothermia, and that probably works, but does risk the patient developing um, immuno, further immunosuppression and, and sepsis. So now we would advocate just parking them at about 35 degrees, so very, very mild hypothermia, I suppose. Um, and that's normally easy to do if you're on a hemofilter. It's pretty easy to cool people down, so that, that works well. We also administer hypertonic saline, and uh, we target serum sodium around 150 or thereabouts, um, just through a continuous infusion of 20% saline via, via the central line. And that's uh, really a, a preemptive osmotherapy to uh, try and ensure that uh, uh, there's no um, potential for hypotonicity uh, and that we're keeping that brain as dehydrated as possible. Um, and that's also important when you're undertaking hemofiltration, of course. So that's another part. And um, we also... Um, ensure that the patients are ventilated to a low normal uh, CO2. Basically, we would aim for whatever the patient was doing before they were intubated or between 30 and 35 millimetres of mercury um, of arterial CO2. So, so, I mean, a lot of that's essentially, and obviously not, not rocket science, it's just sort of attention to detail and getting those elements in play. Another key and often very distracting concern for people is the derangement of hemostatic parameters. So these patients will have an INR that, that can really make you sit up and take notice. And certainly prolonged INR is a defining characteristic of acute liver failure. Um, it's worth reminding people that the INR was not developed or validated for um, measuring hemostatic derangement in liver failure. It was, was developed for monitoring warfarin therapy, basically. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a good measure of um, hepatic insufficiency. Interestingly, it, it's not great at predicting bleeding risk. Um, and in fact, uh, serious thrombocytopenia and hypofibrinogenemia would appear to be more important um, predictors of, of, of potential for bleeding. Now, it's all very well for me to say that, but when I turn to my trainees and say, can you please insert the VASCAS and the INRs 7, they quite understandably look somewhat horrified. Um, but uh, there's increasing evidence that it's not necessary nor, or nor desirable to um, preemptively treat that number specifically. Um, I, I would certainly acknowledge that if a patient's actively bleeding, then one should absolutely treat that. But um, an isolated INR of, say, five or seven, um, may not require intervention even if one is putting in um, a vascular access device. Um, we'd certainly recommend avoiding MART um, thrombocytopenia or hypofibrinogenemia and, and supplementing as required for that. Um, but yeah, coagulopathy certainly um, occupies a lot of people's attention, but bleeding would appear to be relatively uncommon. 
um, as, as would thrombosis. People are sometimes concerned that um, these patients may indeed represent a prothrombotic risk despite um, hemostatic parameters suggesting otherwise. But we've um, got some work under review currently that suggests that uh, that's probably not a major concern either, although in the literature there have been um, expressions of, uh, of anxiety about that. So certainly coagulopathy is a, another major challenge and, and, um, and clinical concern in this, this population. Stephen, why do patients with acute liver failure die? What are the predominant reasons for their demise? Yeah, so if you'd asked me this question um, a number of years ago, I would have said refractory intracranial hypertension from severe cerebral edema complicating the hepatic encephalopathy. But um, increasingly that's probably less the case. And I'd love to tell you I know why that's happened. I, I think it's probably from general improvements in care and the earlier initiation of um, renal replacement therapy and attention to temperature and hypertonic saline and other sorts of interventions that I've already described. Um, so that used to be a big deal and now it's still very important and a patient can still die of it, but we don't normally see that these days. What they tend to succumb to is refractory multiple organ failure due to failure of spontaneous hepatic regeneration, uh, plus or minus a good dose of sepsis. And it's not so often as uh, is much, very much the case across critical illness that we necessarily find a pathogen. So you don't always prove these patients are bacteremic. But um, certainly there's good evidence that acute liver failure causes significant uh, immune um, deficiency and they're very vulnerable to um, particularly gram-negative uh, sepsis and probably fungal as well. And we do still see on uh, too many occasions circumstances where a patient will succumb at, say, between 7 to 14 days when sometimes their cerebral edema may well be to some degree well-controlled or, or even resolving, and yet they uh, relentlessly deteriorate with refractory multiple organ failure, increasing um, uh, requirements for circulatory support. Typically, their noradrenaline goes up a lot, and then their lactate starts to go back up again, uh, having been normalised, and um, they just never come out of the hole of um, multiple organ failure and deteriorate further um, it's a difficult situation then because are they too sick for transplantation? Well, that's a tough call to make. Um, and uh, it, it's, it's not a boat you want to miss. So, yeah, that, that, that's, I think, the dominant cause of, of death for these patients these days. And it's fair to say we've still got a long way to go in better understanding that element of things and uh, how we can improve practice in that regard. Stephen Warrolo, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast and sharing some insights from your survey with us today. It's been my pleasure, Todd. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. For more great interviews just like this one, visit our website at osla.force.com.